I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Simon Long. And coming up on today's show, Joe Biden will be the 46th President of the United States. He inherits an economy mired in an unprecedented crisis and in a -a once-in-a-generation state of flux. We assess the mess he faces. It's not a free lunch, right? There are fiscal consequences of a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. The kind of economy Biden will inherit will be an unequal one. States and local government are in real financial difficulty at the moment. What do you do with the tariffs? The push for decoupling is going to continue. And the world's biggest IPO that wasn't. What does the fate of Ant Group reveal about the future of private enterprise in China? Are these going to be regulations that will actually ensure that there will be space for challengers to come in? Or will it be the deadening hand of the state that will stifle some of China's most dynamic private sector players? But first... I sought this office to restore the soul of America, to rebuild the backbone of this nation, the middle class, and to make America respected around the world again. Joe Biden will be the next president of the United States. And now the work of making that vision is real. It's a task, the task of our time. But that task is a daunting one. He inherits a complex crisis that's constantly changing. On Monday, America again recorded over 130,000 new cases of COVID-19. While stocks soared, following the news that a vaccine in development by Pfizer and BioNTech is more than 90% effective. One thing's certain, coaxing the American economy toward recovery will be an exceptional challenge. Samir Keynes is The Economist's trade and globalisation editor, and Callum Williams is our senior economics writer. Welcome to Money Talks, both of you. It is lovely to be here. Likewise, thanks, Simon. Callum, can you start us off? Just how much is it possible to say at this stage about the economy Mr Biden will inherit? I think at this point, macro judgments are epidemiological judgments. They're kind of the same judgment. I guess the interesting thing about the US case, though, is that the kind of relationship between the spread of the virus and the decline in activity, at least at the moment, seems a bit weaker than it does, say, in Europe, because what's happened in Europe is the number of coronavirus cases has has gone up pretty significantly, and that's prompted governments to institute pretty strict, often nationwide lockdowns. But you haven't seen uh, the same thing in the US in the past few weeks for, for various complicated reasons. So it's really hard to say, but I think all else equal, one would probably be somewhat more bullish on the US than other rich countries. Samir, do you share that guarded optimism? 
Yeah, I, I suppose my take on this would be to sort of step back and, and think about various, you know, structural problems in the U.S. economy that COVID has has made worse, right? So, you know, the unemployment rate right now for all workers is around seven percent, um, which is is much higher than one would like, and certainly much higher than than it was going into the pandemic. And the point is that that is unequally spread. The unemployment rate among Black workers is eleven percent. In terms of the macro, everything Callum says is right. It's going to be a really tricky situation in terms of how can a Biden administration get through a stimulus, how much stimulus will be necessary. But then the backdrop to all of this that, you know, we do know that the kind of economy Biden will inherit will be an unequal one with structural problems that you really do need policy to help fix. And Callum, with the current surge in new COVID cases, there are signs, aren't there, that the initial economic recovery is losing steam. Might the country see a double dip recession? I mean, I think the evidence suggests so far that the recovery has been faster than people had expected it to be. So if you, for instance, look at what the Fed had expected the unemployment rate to be at the end of this year, it was about 9%. And we went through 9% in August. America kind of broke with fiscal orthodoxy in the early part of the pandemic and, and instituted a, a response that was not simply large in comparison to other countries in absolute terms, but also in comparison to other countries in proportional terms, and also large in comparison with what America had done during previous recessions. And that had lots of different aspects to it, but probably the most kind of well-known parts of it involve sending really quite large amounts of money, particularly to people who had lost their jobs. And I think what that did in terms of consumer spending and in terms of ensuring that people could continue to buy necessities in many cases has had pretty good impacts. It is in many respects a blueprint for what countries should be doing when recessions hit in the future, which is basically just to send large amounts of money and focus your resources on people who don't have much money to begin with. And that's what America did this time. And I think so far the evidence suggests it's worked quite well. Yeah, I mean, there's really good economics research that looks at at how the people with the least money tend to cut their spending most when they you know, lose their job, right? And so there's just huge benefits in terms of multipliers when, when you send cash to people who, who have just lost their jobs, who really, really need it. If you don't do that, then they cut their spending by the most, and that has the biggest ripple effects to the rest of the economy. If that first stimulus package is still having an effect, still working, as you say, how important is it that a second one goes through before the inauguration? And how likely is that? I've got used to the idea that it won't happen because there's been so many false starts with this uh, fourth round of uh, stimulus negotiations that I don't think you should be optimistic. But in terms of whether the economy requires it, I think it's an article of faith amongst a lot of economists that it does. I think there are aspects of stimulus that would be very useful. So for instance, states and local government are in real financial difficulty at the moment because they sort of need to run balanced budgets all the time. So if their tax revenues go down, they have to cut spending as well. The evidence from the last crisis a decade ago was that austerity at the state and local level was one of the main reasons why the recovery from from 10 years ago in the US was, was quite slow. And so I think it would be really silly to repeat that mistake again. Now we know kind of what works and what doesn't. In terms of other forms of stimulus, things like the payment protection program for small businesses, another round of stimulus checks, all that kind of stuff. I think the evidence is weaker on that. Bear in mind that obviously stimulus is not its not a free lunch, right? There are fiscal consequences of a multi-trillion dollar stimulus package. Specifically in terms of household finances, the evidence is not 100% conclusive, but suggests pretty strongly that 
US households have still got in the region of $2 trillion of amassed savings from the pandemic months, which they are spending down, but spending down quite slowly. So I don't think the household sector as a whole is in need of the same amount of support that it needed in March. I think stimulus is required, but perhaps not quite as much as people might have argued. And how about monetary policy, Callum? Is there anything more the Fed can do? I don't think so. They could do something, but I don't think it's necessary. There's there's, there's this Main Street lending programme, which is basically a way of the Fed to try and send money to small businesses. It's had practically zero take up. That's been interpreted as a very bad thing. The other way of looking at it is to say that that was put in place as an insurance policy if things got really, really bad, which they haven't. So the fact it hasn't been used that much is not necessarily a sign that the policy failed. One outcome of the election is quite a high probability of renewed political deadlock between the White House and Congress, assuming the Republicans retain control of of Senate. The financial markets, even before the vaccine news, were quite buoyed by this, it seemed. But um, doesn't the the real economy actually need decisive decision-making? Isn't gridlock a bad thing? Sumeya? I'm always quite wary of reaching for very, you know, causal explanations of what stock markets have done. People were pleased because um, if the Democrats didn't have the Senate, then it meant that they wouldn't be able to reverse some of the tax cuts that the Trump administration put in place. But, you know, you wouldn't have someone who was quite so uh, mercurial and unpredictable leading the executive branch. And so that, that combination they quite liked. History suggests that uh, the Republicans are quite happy to block stimulus when actually the economy really does need it. After the global financial crisis, the Republicans essentially sort of forced a a form of austerity onto the the American government that was quite premature. And so I suppose perhaps people are happy that the tax cuts won't be reversed. My concern is that if things do start to deteriorate and and do go downhill quite rapidly, the politics of of a Republican-controlled Senate will stop the American economy getting what it needs then. Looking at the international angle for for a moment, Samaya, From Europe, at least, it seems many leaders are relieved to be welcoming Joe Biden. Angela Merkel, for example, has been talking about rebuilding the transatlantic friendship. Yet this very week, they're also going ahead with imposing tariffs uh, on American goods because of the Airbus-Boeing dispute. I mean, do you really think that it's going to be possible to reset the EU-US trade relationship? I think you're right. I think there is a big sense of relief that a Biden administration will just be easier to deal with. Things will be less surprising. There won't be as many aggressive tweets about bilateral trade deficits and surpluses. The Boeing Airbus dispute is obviously a very long running dispute. Arguably, you know, it's all happening within the the rules-based system. And I'm actually reasonably hopeful that they might be able to sort this out amicably. There are obviously other big irritants in in the transatlantic relationship that will will stop things going from harsh words to cuddles. One of them is the digital services tax. So the French government in particular has has vowed to start collecting revenue from from a digital services tax on, on US tech companies. If the OECD talks, these big multilateral talks to reform the the international corporation tax system, if those talks fail, then they'll start collecting the revenue. And lo and behold, it looks like those talks are not going to succeed this year. There, 
the United States Trade Representative, they have a tariff list that's ready to go. This is not happening through the World Trade Organization and it could get pretty messy pretty quickly if, for example, the EU decides to retaliate against what it would see as, as illegitimate US tariffs against the digital services tax. So that that's one I'm, I'm much more concerned about. And how about the other big trade relationship with, with China? I mean, what, what chances of going up, what was your phrase, from, from harsh words to cuddles there? <laughs> yeah, not many cuddles there. The China relationship is one where... A, there is really a bipartisan shift. Everyone is just much, much more hawkish. You know, the big questions for a Biden administration, the, the, one of the first is going to be, what do you do with the tariffs? Um, I, I haven't seen anything to suggest that they're going to just unilaterally lift those um, on, on day one. Neither have I seen much to suggest that we're going to get a, a phase two trade deal to build on what, what the Trump administration agreed One of the big issues at the moment is that the Trump administration agreed as part of the phase one trade deal that China would buy a lot of American stuff. And so far, China seems to be quite a way behind schedule. Um, And so there's a question of whether the Biden administration will will take that as a slight or whether they'll say, you know what, this managed trade arrangement was always not something we, we particularly liked. Don't worry about it. Let's just focus on the structural things. So you've got that trade relationship, but then you've got everything else, right? You've got Huawei, you've got, you know, all the defense hawks saying that, that we're worried about this relationship. The the push for kind of decoupling um, to reducing that dependency on China is, is going to continue. This is going to be an area where there's going to be a bit more kind of poking than cuddles. So the new administration is going to have an enormous amount on its plate. If you were running it, Let's start with you, Callum. What would your economic priorities be on the, on the domestic front? I guess it would be a good thing to have a renewal of the benefits that were given to people who became unemployed during the height of the pandemic. So they boosted unemployment benefits by $600 a week, basically from April until end of July. I mean, I think the effects on that have been very interesting and almost all pretty good. I mean, there's been basically zero evidence of any disincentives in terms of people, you know, not willing to look for work because they're being paid so much by the state. I think it did a lot for poverty reduction. As Sumer was alluding to earlier, I think it did a lot in terms of sort of macroeconomic stability, because a lot of this money was was spent. And there's also even a bit of evidence that people use this kind of financial buffer to start new businesses and move into new gaps in the market and that kind of thing. So overall, it's that policy was really quite successful. I think it could be potentially tweaked, as as Jason Furman and others have argued, to kind of more closely respond to, to local unemployment conditions. So I think it would probably be that alongside more help for states and local government, which are really facing a big budget squeeze at the moment. And Samir, what about its trade and international economic policy? Well, if you look at the Biden campaign, it's fairly obvious that trade deals are not a priority. He said that he's going to invest in Americans first and that the priority will be the domestic economy. And that makes sense to me. Uh, I'm just not sure, given the political landscape, it makes sense to burn huge amounts of political capital um, trying to get new agreements through. Now, clearly, you need to find answers on what, what you do with China. But in terms of like, healthcare, stimulus, all those things, I think it, it's fine that trade take a backseat for now. Samir Keynes, Callum Williams, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Look out for our full analysis of the economic challenges facing Joe Biden in the next issue of The Economist. And online, you'll also find our assessment of the importance of the new COVID-19 vaccine breakthrough. Could this be the beginning of the end of the pandemic? If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special introductory offer for listeners 
at economist.com slash podcast offer. You can find the link in the episode notes on your podcast app. Coming up, Ant agonizes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The double IPO of the world's biggest fintech, Ant Group, on the Shanghai and Hong Kong stock exchanges was to be the most valuable in history. Speaking at a summit in Shanghai on October the 24th, Ant's founder, Jack Ma, was in triumphant mood, bullish about the future of fintech in China. China's case is opposite to Europe's, he said. So regulators shouldn't be worried about systemic financial risk. Red tape, he suggested, only held up innovation. Well, his words came back to haunt him. Ten days later, on November the 3rd, Ant was forced to halt the flotation. This had to be one of the most volatile up-and-down weeks for capital markets anywhere, to have Ant going from being on track to be the world's biggest IPO ever to it being the world's biggest suspended IPO ever in quite murky circumstances. Simon Rabinovich is our Asia economics editor based in Shanghai. The deal had already been priced. It was more than 800 times oversubscribed. And then less than 48 hours before it actually began trading, Ant announced to the stock exchanges in Hong Kong and Shanghai that its listing had been suspended. It said because of changes in regulations, it didn't meet listing qualifications any longer. Of course, this begs the question of why. There's no absolute 100% clear answer yet, but there's sort of two dominant theories, if you will. One is that financial regulations were coming down the pipeline that were going to really change Ant's business. That's the closest to the official explanation. Regulators have said that they've, they were changing the rules for the sake of financial stability. The second explanation is that Jack Ma, the founder of, of Ant and still its dominant owner, may have so angered the government that they decided to basically slam the brakes on, on the listing. Ant is not a new entity. Its IPO is not new either. It had been in the pipeline for months. So the idea that kind of two days just before the IPO, uh, all of a sudden there's going to be this big regulatory shift really is a, a big about face. What exactly is being proposed and how much is it a threat to Ant's entire business model? A few different things are being proposed. The rules won't be finalized until December. One of the big regulations is that for these kinds of online lending companies like Ant, when they co-lend with a bank, the online company Ant uh, or its competitors will have to fund 30% of the loan. Now, that's a really big change because the way that Ant has been operating is that it basically arranges the loan, but then a bank will provide all of the capital. If you look at all of the loans that Ant has arranged, it only provides capital for about 2% of the total. So it'll have to go from leverage of 50 times to leverage of just over three times. From the regulator's 
perspective, you know, the concern is that if the fintech companies like Ant don't have enough skin in the game, then maybe they're not going to be conducting sufficient due diligence. Ant's response to that concern, if you will, has been that, look at their model is that they need to have banks that want to co-lend with them. And the only way that banks will co-lend with them is if they consistently produce good asset quality. And so it's not in their interest to, to run up the risks. But the fact is that if the regulatory landscape is changing like this, it's going to make them potentially a less profitable and slower growing business as a result. Will it still go ahead with an IPO at some date? And if so, when? It definitely sounds like it's still going to go ahead with an IPO. I mean, it's still the world's biggest fintech company. They, they then will have a challenge, which is that on the one hand, they're going to have to persuade regulators that they've modified their business to a sufficient extent to be less risky. At the same time, they're going to have to persuade investors that they've not modified their business to such an extent as to be much less profitable or less promising than they once looked to be. The previous model that Ant had gone for, they were really playing up the tech side of it, which meant that it was being valued as a tech company, not as a financial company. Now with them you know, having to have more capital, having to fund more of the loans themselves, Ant will look a bit more like a financial company. So previously, you know, people talked about it as having a valuation of maybe 40 times forward earnings, while bank valuations in China are closer to 10 times forward earnings. So is Ant going to be IPOing at a valuation that's as much as 75% lower than it previously was? It, it probably won't be that low, but a lot of people are saying that maybe it will be half as much. So it'll go from being a $300 billion plus company to maybe being a $150 billion plus company. And what about the future of, of Jack Ma himself? Uh, he, he is a remarkable figure, isn't he? A former Red Guard, former English teacher, pioneer of e-commerce in China through Alibaba and e-finance through Ant, one of China's richest men. What's his future? It's ironic in a way in that it seems that his future was, was known already last year when he retired from his formal position at the helm of Alibaba, the, the e-commerce giant that he founded. And then all the talk was that, you know, under Xi Jinping, tycoons like Jack Ma were, were learning to have to be a lot more modest and humble. And so I guess the, the suspicion now is that he'll sort of go back to what he was doing prior to October, which is not trying to draw too much attention to himself. He's in the space of a couple of days shaved several billions of dollars off of his net worth. He's earned some grudging respect as well. I mean, to, to dare to be outspoken the way that he was in China these days is not something that's seen very often. So so he's definitely earned some grudging respect at the same time as, as losing a lot of uh, paper worth as well. And more broadly, Simon, just a few weeks ago on Money Talks, we were talking to you about what you called Xenomics, Xi Jinping's new economic policies a key part of which seemed to be imposing more market discipline on state firms and bringing the private sector more in line with the party's wills. How does this affect your understanding of that? Does it fit in with it? Yeah, it does. And it's interesting to see that just today, in fact, the government announced a whole raft of new regulations that are targeting big tech going after ways in which big tech companies like Alibaba and Tencent might be squeezing out their rivals, uh, ways in which other companies like you know DD, a big ride-hailing platform, or uh, Meituan, a big shopping platform, might be using excessive subsidies to also stop other companies from rivaling them, ways in which they manage their data. So you can see the government 
launching a whole host of regulations to try to bring big tech under the ambit of, of government control. So I think what Ant has faced is it's not just because of Jack Ma's speech. It's because that this is the general direction in which the government is taking the private sector and big tech. And, and the question then is, are these going to be regulations that will actually ensure that key important sectors and companies will remain competitive? There will be space for challengers to come in? Or will it be the deadening hand of the state that will stifle some of China's most dynamic private sector players? And we don't know the answer yet, but that is where China is today. Simon Rubinovich, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. While you're with us, please take a moment to rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We read them all, and your feedback helps us immensely. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.